Well, good evening. Hope you've had a wonderful day and are excited to be here tonight as we come together to hear the holy and inerrant word of Almighty God. Tonight we are going to be in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the book of the prophet Habakkuk. And so if you want to be turning there, he is called one of the minor prophets. Of course, there's nothing minor about the importance of this prophet. It's just the length of his writing is minor in comparison. But Habakkuk, in terms of importance and influence, is great. He's one of the great prophets. In fact, when you think about that great book of the New Testament, Romans, in the first chapter, Paul, at a key point, anchors his argument to this book. Paul writes in verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now that quotation, the just shall live by faith, comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. We won't be there tonight, but in a couple of weeks we will, and I look forward to it. But that is a quotation of great importance, because Paul begins even that early to say that the way we are justified is by faith alone. And he bases it on the writings of this great prophet. And we will see uh, how Paul is using Habakkuk soon to make his argument. But this prophet was a great prophet, an influential prophet. He lived in a very difficult age. In fact, he lived at a pivotal time in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was a contemporary of other great prophets like Nahum and Zephaniah and the great prophet Jeremiah. So I want us to Read the first four verses. Now, the reason we're going to read only the first four verses tonight is I don't want to get too much into the conversation that he has with God tonight. I want to set the stage for the book, for the time period, for what's going on, if you will. This will be a short sermon tonight, but I believe it will be profitable to us to think about the times in which the great prophet lived. Now, if you know this book, and I'm sure most of you do, you know that it's going to be a conversation in the beginning. Uh, Habakkuk is going to cry out to God, and God is going to respond, and then Habakkuk will respond, and this sort of thing. We want to look at Habakkuk's initial, if you will, cry out to God, because it really tells us much about the age in which Habakkuk lived. Let's listen to the word of the Lord, uh, chapter 1 of Habakkuk, verses 1 through 4. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife, and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. The word of the Lord. I want us to look tonight at two points as we think about the age in which Habakkuk lived. And the title of the sermon, by the way, is A Generation After Reformation. And that will tie to our second point tonight. Our first point is a terrible era in Judah. A terrible era in Judah. And our second point tonight is a single generation after Reformation. A single generation after Reformation. I want to begin here with the idea of a terrible era in Judah. Now we begin this letter tonight with recognition that we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. Many scholars believe that Habakkuk was widely known in his own day. 
they, they seem to be good evidence for that. They base it on verse 1, which it, its wording is, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. They don't feel the need to explain who this Habakkuk is or to differentiate which Habakkuk. It seems as if saying the prophet Habakkuk is enough to identify who he is. Therefore, he must have been widely known in his day. A bold prophet. A man of God. A man who carried the burden or oracles of God. A man who came before those in power and proclaimed the word of God to them. Is called to serve in the city of Jerusalem, or at least he's connected to the capital city of Jerusalem. He's familiar, certainly, with the events that are going on there. And this letter will speak of the prophetic burden that he has, the prophetic burden that he carries in relationship to the people of that city and, in fact, the entire nation of Judah. Now, it's interesting because the word burden is used, and usually when you talk of a burden, it's a prophetic message that carries with it judgment. And oftentimes, we think of these judgments as judgments upon foreign nations. But in this period of time, when you look at Jeremiah and you look at Habakkuk, you see judgment upon the people of God, or the nation, if you will, of Judah. It's interesting here because in the case of Habakkuk, it is primarily a message of judgment against Judah, and only secondarily a message of judgment against a foreign nation. The reason for judgment is made immediately clear in the text. If you were listening to the first four verses that we read, Habakkuk lays out the case for us. Why judgment? Why would God judge His people? Why would God bring judgment upon Judah? Well, listen again. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry out to you and you not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. And the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. My friends, what's immediately clear in the text is that Judah is going through one of the darkest periods in its history. Judah is going through one of the darkest periods in its history. This nation, set apart for God's glory, has become nothing more than a moral cesspool. The people are wicked and no longer fear God. The second verse signals that it was an era of violence, not violence of foreign occupiers or oppression. It's an era in which violence is used as a tool to get what you want. Violence is used by the powerful to bully the weak and perhaps even in other cases, by people who want to advance their own position. The law of God, when quoted, is abused for the purpose of man. And all of this description helps us to date the prophecy. You see, it signals a time in which the Chaldeans are on the rise and Judah is in a dire moral situation. Now, the reason that helps us to date it is because it cannot be prior to Josiah, as the Chaldeans had not yet risen enough to be of note. When God mentions the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, when God mentions the Chaldeans, there isn't a point at which Habakkuk has to ask who. In other words, they're known, they are known to be a rising power at this point. If it was before Josiah, it would have been too early. You wouldn't have thought of the Chaldeans. It would have needed to be explained. It's certainly not during Josiah's reign. That was a good era in Judah. It couldn't be described as in the way Habakkuk describes the age in which he lives. Yet, in the years after Josiah's death in 609 B.C., things rapidly shifted. 
Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, is named king, but is removed from the throne after only three years by Pharaoh, Necho II. The Egyptian king replaced him with his older brother Jehoiakim. Now, that should immediately bring a couple of questions to our minds. First of all, it tells us that he was passed over initially. If he's the older brother, why wasn't he made king? Well, there had to be a reason, didn't there? It must be that uh, his character was questioned. But it also brings up the second question, why would Egypt want him to be king? The fact that he was initially passed over and the fact that Egypt wants him to be king would tell us very quickly this was not a man of moral character. This was a man who was corrupt. Egypt thought they could control him and Egypt needs someone they can control. By 609, Assyria is weakened. Babylon is rising quickly. And my friends, Pharaoh needs something to counterbalance or to aid him in tipping the power his way in a divided Middle East. What he begins to think of is, if I can get Judah to side with me, have a strong alliance with me, they're strong enough to tip the balance of power my way. He wants to get rid of anybody that would stand in the way, and so he wants to put Jehoiakim on the throne. He needs to make sure that he'll have a man who will do what he wants, so he wants Jehoiakim. And so he makes sure he gets him on the throne. Most scholars believe that this letter was written sometime around 605, which shows you the results of only four years under this corrupt king. Corruption, violence, and ungodliness reign. That's the description we get from Habakkuk, isn't it? Look at it again. In verse 2, he talks about violence. Why do you not save us, O Lord, from the violence that you see on the streets? Violence everywhere. Everywhere there's iniquity. Everywhere there's trouble. There's the plundering of people and their wealth. There is violence before me. There is strife and division and contention always arising. And the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous and perverse judgment proceeds. My friends, that is a description not only of the sin of man, but also God's judgment, isn't it? When a society falls so far, so fast, that even the institutions of the government no longer maintain order, no longer maintain justice, that, my friends, is what we see here. Corruptions in the hearts of the people, but also in the heart of government, as government itself is part of the problem. When you look at this time, you recognize that it was a dark time. A difficult time. We can see a picture of it in Jeremiah and that famous sermon where in the exact same time as Habakkuk, Jeremiah goes before the king and calls out to him, reform your ways. Now therefore, reform your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Why? Because Jeremiah tells him, if you do not, God will bring doom and destruction upon you. He has already announced it. Therefore, amend your ways. Now, my friends, this is such a dark age. I think Jeremiah's message really helps confirm it. Because what is the response? They give lip service, if you will. They kind of say, oh, yeah, we we hear him. We shouldn't kill Jeremiah. Uh, Because many people did argue that Jeremiah should be killed for the message that he gave. But some others step in and they say, no, he shouldn't. He shouldn't be killed. And yet, in the same chapter... There is another prophet of God, Uriah, who they track down and kill because he proclaims the word of the Lord. My friends, this is an era of wickedness, of absolute wickedness, and we shouldn't miss it. If we've seen the era, the 
terrible era in Judah, we also want to see our second point tonight, a single generation after Reformation. Now, I, I titled this sermon, A Generation After Reformation. It's also the second point because I think it's something we need to think about. All of these events, these horrific events, this incredible, uh, terrible age uh, for Judah stands less than a half a decade after the end of one of the greatest periods of reform in the history of the people of God. That should shock us tonight. After years of decline under Manasseh and Amon, King Josiah reigned as a tender-hearted king, desiring the glory of God to be worshipped in Judah. It would be very hard to question the heart of King Josiah. Here was a man who loved God, desired that God would be honored and worshipped through Judah. He rebuilt the temple. He reopened it. He restarted worship there again after it had been shut down. In the process, they found the long-lost Deuteronomy scroll. He had it read. He brought it back to the people. The Word and the law of God brought back to the people. The Word once more proclaimed. Josiah treasured the law and incorporated it into everyday life, if you will, governing based on the Word of God. He tears down the idols. He restores proper worship in the land. These things are good and pleasing to Almighty God. They honor God. And yet all of that progress over many years, gone in a single generation. Wait a minute. What's even more shocking than that is it's not even a generation. It's a mere four years of the reign of Jehoiakim. Less than a half a decade after the heights of, if you will, glory and the reformation of Josiah. Now, just four years later, there is a cesspool, a moral cesspool in Judah. And the question that we would ask is, how can you explain it? How can you explain that by the days of this prophecy, things have gotten so bad? When we preached that sermon on Jeremiah chapter 22, we tried to answer that then. You know, we often think about these periods of Reformation as great periods, and they are great periods. We ought to be thankful for King Josiah and what he stood for. We ought to be thankful for the example that he set and the godliness that he ruled with as king of Judah. But my friends, we need to recognize that there is a message in all of this. That even though King Josiah can open the temple, even though Josiah can, can read the Deuteronomy scrolls and he can reinstitute proper worship and he can tear down idols and he can do all these great things. And the people may do them because they are ordered to do so by the king of the land. There is a difference between going through external measures and being a people changed in the heart. But you all know how often I quote Isaiah chapter 1, in which you see a people who are going through the motions in the temple and God says it's worthless to him because it's not done in hearts of gratitude or praise or thanksgiving or worship. It's done simply running through external motions. That seems to be, again, what Jeremiah understands is the problem again because look at chapter 31 where he has this great vision of this future day where God will give his people a law written on human hearts not on tablets of stone you see what the problem was all along was a people who are hard-hearted it doesn't matter how much they go through the external motions if they have hearts of stone uncircumcised hearts my friends this is going to be much of Paul's argument in Romans isn't it 
it's not my purpose to go there tonight, but to make this point that things got so bad so quick because the hearts of the people were never changed. They had a good king, a man of God who did the right thing, but it only took four years for the people to be right back in idolatry and evil and every other kind of ungodliness. So in closing, that's where we're at. That's the setting. That's the age in which Habakkuk ministered. That's the age in which he proclaimed the the burden of the Lord. And maybe as we're closing tonight, you are noticing some rather obvious parallels. Often I hear people talk about the golden age of the American church, if you will. I'm not sure when that's supposed to be, but you hear a lot of people talk about the 50s and 60s and maybe even the 70s and 80s. And they would say, you know, it wasn't just a handful of churches that were full. It wasn't just the mega churches. It wasn't just the quote-unquote successful churches. Most churches were full. And now we're in an age where very few churches are full. And how do you explain it? How do we fall so far so fast? I guess you can see a parallel there, right? In Josiah's day, you went from uh, these heights of the reformation of Josiah to uh, the wickedness of the days that Habakkuk lives in in just four years. So you say, how do we go from our churches being full 20 or 30 years ago to now, a generation or two later, are so many churches being empty? I think a lot of answers could be given to that. I think we focused on the wrong things. By the time I'm old enough to remember kind of church culture, it was very much about uh, social activities. People went to church because that's where their friends were. People went to church because that's what you're kind of supposed to do. The truth is, what Josiah wanted was an age in which people go to the temple because they wanted to hear the Word of God. And what church should be is that the people of God desire to come to the church to worship and praise a holy and righteous God who is worthy of praise. I don't look at church as something necessarily that I gain from, although I gain from it. I go to church because God desires His people to gather to lift up praises to Him. And God is worthy of praise. You see, what I'm getting at is church was made about me and not about God. Our God, the Trinitarian God, deserves, He is worthy of worship. That's the reason we should be coming here, because we desire to lift praises and thanksgiving to Him. You see, if our hearts aren't in the right place, then they fall away quickly. And what's interesting is the church has doubled down on what we were doing wrong in the first place. We said, oh, you know, we had this kind of social thing going and we've lost these people, so we need to double down on it. First and foremost, we come together to praise and lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Bring Him glory. That's where we went wrong. It's not about me. I heard Albert Moeller say not too long ago that one of the things that is so sad is the missed opportunity we had when those churches were full. When those churches were full, we had an opportunity to proclaim the Word of God. To tell them about God's holiness and His glory and what He calls people to. What it means to be a believer. And how just because you show up to church on Sunday doesn't make you a believer. Our churches were full. We had people there. We could have proclaimed the message and we missed the opportunity, he said. We blew the opportunity. Josiah didn't blow the opportunity. But what Josiah shows us is 
is that if hearts are not changed, it will all fall away very quickly. Very quickly. My friends, I think we can see that. So my friends, as we think about an age of Reformation, we should celebrate all the Reformations that we see in church history and in the Scriptures. These great moments where God, by His grace, empowered great change. But we also need to recognize that these things can fall away very quickly. Even today, when you hear these nonsense arguments that the Reformation uh, from 1517, the, the great Reformation of the church is over and should be declared over, that is nonsense. My friends, we are to be always reforming. Always reforming. Recognizing that it is the call of the people of God to implement the Word of God in our lives and in our churches, and that is never complete or finished. So my friends, Habakkuk is called to minister in a very dark and sinful age. And next week we will return to these words that he asks as he cries out to God for an answer and for help, for God's justice and salvation. We'll return to God's answer when Habakkuk cries out, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? My friends, God hears and He will answer. Amen.